My name is Jennifer Miller, and I am the digital editor for the Journal of Cardiovascular Nursing. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Christopher Lee and Dr. Karen Lyons regarding their article, The Patterns of Heart Failure Dyadic Illness Management, The Important Role of Gender, as published in the Journal of Cardiovascular Nursing, Volume 35, Issue 5, pages 416 to 422. Co-authors on this manuscript include Kristen Satheris, Jessica Harmon-Thompson, Kenneth Faulkner, and Emily Ahrens. Cardiovascular nurse scientist Christopher Lee is a professor and associate dean for research at the Boston College William F. Connell School of Nursing. Dr. Lee has dedicated his career to better understanding heart disease and improving long-term outcomes for patients and their families. He is known for his expertise in heart failure self-care and symptom science and patient and care partner dyadic research and chronic condition, as well as the application of advanced statistical methods. Dr. Lee's research involving older adults with heart failure has been supported by grants from the National Institutes of Health, the Office of Research on Women's Health, and the American Heart Association, and it has earned him multiple honors, including the 2009 Martha Hill New Investigator Award, the 2013 Marie Cowan Promising New Investigator Award, the 2015 CVSN Atherosclerosis Heart Failure Translational Research Prize, and the 2020 Matthew Meese Excellence in Aging Award from the American Heart Association, as well as the 2014 Heart Failure Society of America Nursing Leadership Award, the 2016 Friends of the National Institute of Nursing Research Protege Award, and a National Institute of Nursing Research Director's Lecture in 2018. Dr. Lee has published more than 150 papers, and his work has been cited nearly 5,500 times. Dr. Lee also prides himself in mentoring and has been successful in helping multiple colleagues secure National Research Service Awards, career development grants, and large research project grants. Karen Lyons is an associate professor at the William F. Connell School of Nursing at Boston College. She received her bachelor's and master's in psychology from University College, Dublin, Ireland, where she began her program of research on older adults. She went on to receive her Ph.D. in Human Development and Family Studies from the Pennsylvania State University, where she specialized in gerontology and the family care dyad. Her program of research focuses on the experiences of the family care dyad living with chronic and life-limiting illness. In particular, she has focused on how and why members of the care dyad are similar and different in their appraisals of patient symptoms. The impact of these dyadic appraisals on collaborative management of the illness and the health of patient and care partner. Her work across several illnesses has highlighted the important interpersonal context of illness and culminated in the theory of dyadic illness management with her close colleague, Dr. Christopher Lee. Her current work is focused on dyadic interventions to balance the needs of both members of the care dyad across the adult lifespan. Welcome, both of you, and thanks for joining us. We've read your bios, but if each of you could please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm happy to start. My name is Chris, Christopher Lee, and I'm a professor and a dean for research at Boston College. And I've been privileged to study patients predominantly living with heart failure and how they manage their 
wellness and challenges living with that disorder. And a lot of my work has also focused on symptom science. And then as of late, I've really transitioned to studying persons living with chronic illness and their care partners or other family members, and additionally extended to other chronic illness conditions, uh, which has also been a great privilege. And you, Dr. Lyons? Yes, hi, I'm Karen Lyons, and I'm an associate professor at Boston College, and I have studied older adults and family care diets across my career, and in particular, the experiences of the family care diet living with chronic and life-limiting illness, and the important interpersonal context of illness. Just tell us a little bit about your working relationship together, how your research paths crossed, and what you're working on together. Yeah, um, certainly. So I'll jump in, but Karen, feel free to jump in as well. I met Karen a little over 10 years ago. And um, during that time, uh, Karen and I both had our independent programs of research. And that kept us quite busy, in all honesty, you know, working separately at, at first. And I think it was our opportunities uh, teaching in the PhD program together and some joint mentoring opportunities that really carved the pathway at considering kind of merging some of our ideas on uh, embedded in this, how I was trained mostly to think of of self-management of uh, chronic conditions. And then I think it opened the door to us that our methodologies and our um, kind of complementary methodologic strengths. And so I think that probably spans almost about an eight-year period at this time working together and started off really just as kind of an organic partnership and and, and research perspective. And then as we'll get to talk about a little bit later, the evolution of a new theory and um, lots of collaborative ongoing and future research ideas that we're going to be happy to to talk about. So if you could tell us a little bit about the study that was published in JCN, if you could describe that for us and and talk about the overall results and the implications of that study. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, you would say that most of the published research in heart failure care, which is obviously an area of concentration here, is really focused on either individuals performing self-care behaviors. And more recently, we've been happy to see that there's a lot of emphasis on care partner contributions to self-care. But, uh, you know, especially together, we've viewed this as kind of a lost opportunity to learn about the interdependent nature of illness management and the various ways in which patient and their care partners actually work together to manage heart failure. And so, you know, in our view, generally, and as we'll talk a little bit about in our new theory, uh, we view the management of conditions such as heart failure really as a dyadic phenomenon. And there's tremendous variation in how dyads actually work together to manage their illness. At first, you know, our collaboration with our wonderful colleagues, we found uh, in studying heart failure patients and their care partners, that there's really distinct ways in which people manage illness along with their care partners. And uh, in our patterns that we identified in prior research, it centered really on the degree of collaboration within the heart failure dyads. And actually, the first paper that came from this study, we really looked at the way in which dyads have similar or dissimilar appraisal of patients' heart failure symptoms. So this study really builds upon that important prior research. 
And we really wanted to know two things. You know, first is if we could identify patterns at the level of the dyad in terms of their illness management in heart failure. And we focused really intentionally on the recognition and response to symptoms when they occur, knowing how important that is. And second, you know, if we could identify patterns, if we could compare them such that we would know who or is more or less likely to fall into which type of these patterns and really the consequences of it. So the study was really a secondary analysis of cross-sectional data that we collected um, on heart failure dyads, that is patients and their care partners in 62 community uh, dwelling dyads living with heart failure. And there were really three uh, principal findings. You know, the first one was that we were able to identify two distinct patterns of dyadic management, which alone is a novel finding. The second is that when we compared these dyads, we really learned a lot about other differences, like differences in gender and anxiety and depression, the relationship quality, not really just their, the way in which they managed illness. And then third, we have a little bit of an Easter egg in this paper, if you will, and where we comment on what the care partners were actually doing in the dyadic management. And um, for readers that may be familiar, the way that care partner contributions are to care, including heart failure, are often measured is by asking care partners about specific behaviors and uh, that they do for the patient or recommend for the patient. And in most instances, we don't actually know which of those they do. So in this study, we really adapted the way that we measured this so we would learn from care partners specifically for each behavior if they actually did it for patients or that they use recommend, recommending as their own strategy or only strategy. And as it turns out, uh, recommending is by far the dominant action on the part of care partners. Uh, and there's very little doing for these patients. So a couple primary findings in this really cool little Easter egg kind of hidden in the paper, if you will, Jennifer. Very good. And I, I'm really very happy to see kind of the the shift and and I don't know quite when that occurred maybe you know 5 10 years or a little more ago to looking at that dyadic relationship and how important and interdependent patients and their caregivers really are and how it affects the outcomes for both those living with chronic illness and for those who are caring for them um, so I think that this is this is absolutely intriguing yeah our pleasure you used latent class modeling in this study. And if you wouldn't mind to just describe how you use that modeling type and how you uh, used it particularly to identify those patterns of heart failure dyadic management. Yeah, you know, certainly. Um, this study actually has a bit of a hybridization of two methods that um, Karen and I have used really extensively. Well, the first is multi-level modeling of dyadic incongruence. And the second, which you asked about, um, is latent class mixture modeling. Um, so we've actually been doing these methods kind of independently for many years and have methods papers on them that have come out even this year. But there aren't too many examples of where we really merged those two approaches. And they, um, as it turns out, they've all been in this context of the dyads. So it's really kind of a fun way to think about um, doing the analysis quite differently because you've really integrated the approach of both of your expertise. So the latent class mixture modeling is, is just simply put a versatile and more person-centric approach that allows you to study questions about subgroups that exist within samples. And so where this study, like 
many of the studies in nursing are, are non-experimental. We tend to be trained more to use things like means-based approaches, but in reality, there's usually so much variability in the way that people are and the, in the things that we like to measure, like behaviors and symptoms, that clustering types of approaches actually work phenomenally well here. So based on a lot of other work in heart failure and other contexts, we've learned really about the importance of things like heterogeneity and variability in our measures. And then we have worked with these methods uh, quite successfully to tease out really previously unknown groups instead of kind of relying on means-based statistics and then, um, and then move well beyond the assumption that the sample really uh, is representative of one whole. And instead of moving forward with, for example, knowing that within each non-experimental study, there are representatives of lots of different types of ways of doing and ways of knowing. And so that's why these latent uh, approaches are really phenomenal for this type of non-experimental study. And, and through the use of those, you identified two specific patterns of dyadic management in your study. Can you explain the, those themes of care management and how they emerged from your data? I believe you, you termed them collaborative and autonomous. Yeah, so, so certainly I'll take this one too, Karen. I feel like I'm We've worked together enough. You can tell me when to shut up. But, um, you know, the, the first one, um, you're right about the, the nomenclature. It's collaborative versus autonomous. And, you know, before I proceed, I have to say that the nomenclature is very important in, in this part of the process. And it's something that, in all honesty, in this paper and in lots of others where we've kind of had this approach, this is where we actually spend a lot of time before we kind of move forward with the dissemination. Like, have we really captured the essence of the difference between these groups appropriately? And so in this um, paper, the first pattern, um, about 68% of the dyads were really congruent in engagement, meaning that within this type of dyad, patients and their care partners were really contributing at least to the same degree to recognizing and responding to symptoms when they occur. And then you are right that the other patterns, the, you know, the complementary 32% of dyads were incongruent. And in this instance, the vast majority of the care was really self-care on the part of patients with comparatively limited contributions uh, by their care partner. You noted in your discussion section that engendered roles may help to explain your findings. Could you please uh, expand on that connection and what you think may be the basis for that? Sure. You know, there were, there were really um, a few key differences really between the groups. And so, for example, the patients that were in the autonomous pattern also were more um, anxious and depressed and reported worse relationship quality compared with uh, collaborative dyads. But the, the finding that's kind of most intriguing is, of course, with respect to the gender. So the dyads in the autonomous pattern were mostly female patients with male care partners. And uh, this is where we really landed on the language of the engendered spectrum. So I'm happy to have a few comments on that, you know, with a few caveats. One is that, um, you know, I'm not a woman, so anything that I say is from the perspective of a cisgender male. The second is that all of my early work in heart failure was focused on gender and sponsored by the Office of Research and Women's Health. So this is something that I take quite seriously, and I'm very fortunate to work in this area. And then the third is I tend to approach these gender-related differences from a positive and intersectional feminist perspective. So let me talk a little bit about uh, why I think this might be the case. You know, the first is that the role of women in relationships 
as we know, is frequently aligned with the care of others over self. And that may be why, if you're in the more autonomous pattern where most of the patients are women and most of the care partners are, are men, we take we see that women are caring for them for other persons and potentially not getting the help that they need from their care partners. So there's a couple of reasons why women may have difficulty in getting the help uh, that they need, the types of support that they that they need. We've seen in cancer research, for example, that men struggle to know how to support their care partners. And then uh, we also have learned from other areas of research that women may not be communicating their needs quite effectively as well. Another um, issue that comes up with this finding and the reason why we feel comfortable with the engendered language here is that women tend to have an interdependent view of themselves, whereas like their worldview is such that their partners are really part of themselves and that um, that is less of the perception on the part of men. And then we also know from other contexts, most context areas, that women are much more relational and how they want to manage conditions like heart failure. They want to do it with their care partners. And although they may be more emotionally impacted by the quality of their relationship. So that's, I think, why we see that constellation of, of women doing more of the work to manage themselves, potentially getting less help from their care partners, and also the prominence of less of a relationship quality with their care partners. It's just, it's so intriguing when you look at it through the lens of uh, societal norms and cultural norms and, and the way that we, we see the roles of people oftentimes based on, on gender in our society. Yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, you talked a little bit about, or you teased a little bit about your, your theory of dyadic illness management previously. And could you or Dr. Lyons discuss that in a little more detail? Sure. Hi, Jennifer. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and for many reasons. One, I think that Chris alluded to earlier, which is that this is really one of the great exemplars of our collaboration together. And one of the probably most fun things that we have done over the last eight years, we have done great things together. And I think the fact that we're an interdisciplinary team has really helped both of us um, in many ways. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and get great, a great deal out of it. So I'm, I'm delighted to give you a little overview of that theory. So what we did was we actually looked at all of the independent work that we had done and then the culmination of the research we had done for many years together to really develop this theory. So it's empirically informed. And the central goal of the theory is to optimize this concept of dyadic health. And what the theory proposes is that dyadic health is optimized through shared appraisal of the illness within the care diet and through engagement in collaborative management behaviors by that care diet. And all of that happens within the context of individual, relational, familial, and cultural risk and protective factors. This is a very different approach from individual level theories, as our theory views the patient and the care partner as a team or a unit of focus, with the health of both members in that care diet co-varying over time and each member influencing the outcomes of the other member. As such, the health of one member is not more important than another member. Optimizing dyadic health involves balancing the needs of both members of that care diet, as care partners themselves often have their own health challenges. And that's not something that's often recognized by other theories, even other dyadic theories. Particularly happens in older couples, as you can imagine. 
So focusing on the concept of dyadic health is a real important contribution of the theory and acknowledges the complexity of roles that occur within care diets, but it also guides our evaluation of interventions, which is also something very important to both of us. The concept of dyadic appraisal in our theory really moves beyond individual appraisal of symptoms and designating a gold standard or a correct respondent. Rather, the emphasis is on how much the patient and care partner are on the same page about symptoms or other illness-related appraisals and concerns, and the consequences of that shared appraisal on how the diet collaborates to manage the illness, but also on their health as a team. Finally, the concept of dyadic management behaviors is also another important contribution of the theory. It encompasses both the verbal and nonverbal ways that care diets collaborate to manage illness and health. An important assumption of the theory is that there is heterogeneity across diets in how they experience and navigate illness, with a spectrum of collaboration from one end where one member of the care diet may do almost everything, to the other end where both members engage to varying degrees and in varying ways. And so it's something that we're incredibly excited about um, and really are in the process of testing in many different ways. And for the audience who may want to know more about this theory, um, we did actually publish the theory in the Journal of Family Nursing, which is a wonderful um, journal focused on family health and family healing. And that was in 2018 in volume 24. And thank you very much for sharing where our, our listeners can find that. I think it's a, a, a very interesting theory, and I think it, it has a lot of implications, as you said, for the health of not only people living with chronic illness, but, but for their caregivers. So with all of that in mind, with your theory development and the results of this study, where do you see your next steps for this, this line of research? I think there are several, really. The first is really ongoing testing of the theory, obviously, for us. I mean, even though it's been um, empirically based, you're never done really testing a theory. It's kind of like validity. You're just always testing, right? Right. I think we're very excited that even though the theory was only published in 2018, that it's already informing many studies, both descriptive and interventional, in the areas of heart failure, stroke, cancer, dysphagia, dementia, palliative care, and Parkinson's disease, to name a few, and also across disciplines, including nursing, medicine, public health, speech therapy, and psychology. So that is truly exciting to us, and we're looking forward to learning a lot about the strengths of the theory through all of that work. But I think another really important line of future direction for myself and Chris, and one that's very near and dear to our heart, is testing out theoretically driven dyadic interventions. And so we have just been newly funded by NIA to test a dyadic intervention in heart failure that's been directly informed by this theory. And we are in the process of launching that right now and excited to do that to see how it works out. I think also because of everything that Chris said earlier about what really drew us to work together in the first place and the and the enjoyment we have had in collaborating and merging our ideas and our different perspectives and approaches that I think we all very much see a lot of ongoing and exciting work conceptually and methodologically to 
to advance the area of dyadic science of illness. So there's a lot of work to be done. A lot. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, but a lot of fun to be had to doing it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you feel is the most pressing need in the patient caregiver illness management research area? I know that's kind of a, a, a very difficult question because it's it's so encompassing, but is there something that is really heavily on your radar that you feel needs to be addressed imminently? Well, I think I'll, I'll jump in first and then Chris can absolutely follow. Um, I think, you know, at its most simplest form, I think we just need more. And, and I think that really is the basic need to be able to really push this field forward. And I would say it's not just more including both members, right? So I think it's really a focus, a central focus on including the care diet as the focus of the research, drawing on dyadic theories, dyadic methods, and including dyadic concepts. So that really from the beginning to the end of the study, the research is dyadic. And I think that's incredibly important. It's particularly needed in heart failure and other cardiovascular contexts. I will say that there's a very good deal of dyadic research that has been done in cancer for many, many years. And they, they really have contributed greatly to our understanding of the experience of illness by two people to a lesser extent, maybe in the context of dementia. So there's much more that needs to be done across all illness contexts if we're really going to advance this field of dyadic science of illness. I mean, if you step back and kind of think about it, there are very few people who actually manage their illness in complete isolation. And with the recent report from AARP estimating 19% or 48 million people in the U.S. providing care to an adult, many of those also dealing with their own health challenges, it's imperative that we understand the ways family care diets experience and manage illness together and identify those most at risk so that we can deliver effective and tailored interventions that improve the outcomes for both of them. And that's just not possible to do without a dyadic approach. Yeah, and of course that answer was absolutely brilliant and I'm glad that Karen answered it first. <laughs> you know, but I, I will add that uh, as somebody that's a little bit later to the game of considering the dyad as unit of analysis, somebody that was trained quite classically as many of us are to be very person-centric or patient-centric, and to be a student of self-care, you know, as, as a sub-discipline of nursing, you know, it took, it took a lot of change and a lot of growth to actually switch thinking in this regard. But then once you do, um, Jennifer, you start to view the world as, as really meeting people where they are in their lives. And in, in, the, in that way, the terms patient and caregiver are often our fabrications from a research perspective, because a caregiver in one study could be a patient in another study, because this is not how people view themselves in the world. And so in a way, we're trying to like work with people how they are in their natural lives and lessen this like kind of fabrication of health services and programmatic implementation and even research. And so it seems quite natural once you get there. And I, I agree. And getting back to something that you mentioned earlier, Jennifer, you were talking about the, you know, within the last five or 10 years, I think that's the reflection on where it, this is going in the right direction in heart failure. But as um, Karen mentioned, like this has actually been done quite successfully and in a much more advanced way in other conditions. So I think another thing that we have to do in cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular nursing, cardiovascular research, patient-oriented research, is to kind of catch up where things have 
already have been advanced uh, to such an extensive degree in conditions like cancer and kind of move beyond our, our nice, comfortable place of cardiovascular disease. Absolutely. And I, I think you all bring out a very important point. When I, I think about the dyad, I often do it in the context of the ill person and the person caring for them. But as you've said, it's really more of a paradigm shift into seeing them as the unit that, that cares for each other and works towards better health for, for both people in that dyad. So I, I think that that's a, a very apt description of making that movement. But I also agree, Chris, that, you know, I mean, we've here in cardiovascular disease, you're absolutely right that, you know, it's, it hasn't been that long that we've been looking at the dyad, but I agree in, in areas like oncology, I think that they have been ahead of us in, in that research. And I think that we can learn a lot from what they've done. And I think that it, it could really inform the cardiovascular nursing research area as well. Absolutely. Yeah. What does being a nurse researcher mean to you? So if you both wouldn't mind just to take a minute um, to reflect on that and just share what that means to you. Yeah, so I'll start because I'm the nurse and um, so I'll answer it first. So it's a fun question for both of us. But um, I, as a nurse scientist, I love the practice and the discipline of nursing and, and really always have. And so the fun part for me is really approaching research from a nursing lens. And um, equally, though, I have to say that I absolutely love working with and learning from scientists from lots of other disciplines. And I've been able to do that in the vast majority of, um, of research that I've conducted and even been involved with. And I have to say that the most learning really occurs is when you expand kind of beyond working with other nurse researchers. And, uh, and I have to say that I've probably learned more from Dr. Lyons than I have most other scientists. And, uh, you know, we have a phenomenal working relationship and we have published a lot and uh, worked with groups internationally all the time. But, you know, in our own groups, we are in constant disagreement about lots of aspects of the research. And uh, we challenge each other constantly, conceptually, methodologically, design perspectives. And in truth, that is actually an element that makes it a, a great team approach to this is to embed that kind of disagreement and feedback and trust in, in saying what's on your mind and, and challenging and, and having that be met uh, with such positivity for the betterment of the research and so that we can optimize the health of the persons that we work with. So it's been an absolute privilege to be a nurse, but to be a nurse on an interprofessional team. And Dr. Lyons, I did not mean for that to be too nurse-centric of a question. What does being a, a researcher mean to you, Dr. Lyons? Well, I would say that I don't mind that question at all because I've spent my entire career in schools of nursing. So I obviously greatly admire and appreciate all of the work of nurses, both at the, in the clinical and research perspective. And I love collaborating and teaching and mentoring nurse scientists and nurse researchers and clinicians. Um, and obviously, I love my psychology background, and it's given me a great um, training in life for the work that I want to do and the passions that I have. But I totally concur with Chris that, you know, this is probably the most fulfilling collaboration that I have. And for all the reasons that Chris mentioned, which is that it's just not much fun to work with somebody who agrees with you. And I don't know if that's my Irish background or my psychology background or just who I am, but I do like to debate. 
And I think I learn a lot more from hearing from other people who have differing points of view and different ways of approaching something. And it doesn't mean that we can't agree because clearly what we do in the end is come up with something that neither of us can actually do by ourselves. And that's what makes this so rewarding and so important. And I also think probably part of the success of why our work is taken up by so many people across illnesses and across disciplines, because we've had to work hard to get to something that can translate beyond our own disciplines. I also think too, that Chris talked about this as well, and many people always ask these questions about how do you get to do good team science and what do you need to do good team science? And I think one of the most important things that I tell all my students, both my nurse students and non-nurse students, is that you have to know what you bring to the table in your own discipline first. There is such an important need to be able to have that disciplinary identity so that when you do go into some kind of high level collaborative interdisciplinary team, you know what you bring to the table and you can reach across the table to find something new and exciting and different. So um, this has definitely been very much one of the highlights of my career working with Chris. I just want to again say thank you all so, so very much for speaking with us today and talking about your important study and your theory. I'm looking forward to following that as it progresses. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, Jennifer. And we're, you know, obviously big fans of the journal too, and uh, very proud to have a lot of our work published here and then uh, follow a lot of other scientists that have their work published here too. So thank you so much for the invitation and it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Jennifer. This was really great.